It's good to see you braving the sub-zero weather in Southern California. <laughs> this is where we post pictures of it and send to our friends in Michigan. Say it's really cold here <laughs> and just see what they say. Um, but no, thank you for being out. It is good to gather as God's people. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning of, of how that encourages and how that builds the body. But, but I want to start with a question this morning. Do you have any family guidelines for your home? <laughs> Do you have any family guidelines for your home? And what are some of them? Anyone? Don't throw food at the dinner table. We should do that one. No. <laughs> Don't throw food at the dinner table, okay? Clean up what? Clean up your own mess, okay? No video games until the schoolwork is done. Amen for the whole semester. Uh, <laughs> no, no mouth noise or smacking. The, amen. <laughs> the, uh, write some of these down. These are good. <laughs> Any others? Respect in all things. Great. Wonderful. Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. Okay? Always keep the past out of arguments. But it's such a wonderful weapon. <laughs> so, so, never say never, okay? Uh, yeah, we have never say never or always and don't should people. <laughs> um, although mom and dad get to should people. But <laughs> Why do you have guidelines in your home? Why? Why? Without them, it's chaos and anarchy. There's truth there. Well, well everyone is good-willed. They should just get to do what they want. <laughs> no? We are a fallen people, right? And our kids and, and our parents, well, and us as parents, we're all fallen people. And we're sinful people. And so we, we need to have some structure. We need to have some guidelines that help us function as a family without chaos and, and function in a godly way, in an honoring way. These serve to direct us. They serve to instruct our kids. And they serve to show what our family, what we want our family to be about. Well, today we start a, a little four-part series, four-week series called Being Family. And, and the idea here is, how do we be family at Village? We talk a lot about being a church family, and, and that is a, a very apt description of what church should be. We're to be a family. And so one of our points last week in Undistracted is we want to be undistracted in loving others and the church. And the concept is because we're family. And we've talked about this before. This isn't new. But the New Testament uses family terms for church and church relationships over 300 times just in the New Testament. It is the most prominent description of the church in the Bible. And so that means something. This is to be our normal way of talking and thinking about church. Family should be our, our way of processing how we treat each other. For them, family, especially the sibling relationship, was their closest relationship. And so we are, that, that's transferred to the church because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that sibling language is no small thing. It was a bond, a strong family bond that was basically blood. 
And so we as a church family are blood. Jesus is blood, but we are blood. And so the family was more important than the individual. The family was more important than even other groups. The family was the most important thing other than God. And so as we take the instructions of the New Testament, that gives us a framework, right? That family is important, and to think of each other as family is important. This has been tested in 2020, and we we talked a lot about distractions last week, but with the election and with the pandemic and with staying home and stay-at-home orders and everything, it has tested us as a church of whether we really believe we are family, whether we really will act like church family and put aside the distractions and be committed to each other in a familial way. It seems like this last year we had to fight distraction of self and my views and my opinions and my rights and so many more than I can remember. But today we come and we say, not with the church. The church is different, and we will counter that radical individualism. We will counter the idea that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over the connection with others. We will counter the the idea and the philosophy that we only judge others in situations by what we can get out of them, whether we're happy, whether we're comfortable, whether they benefit me. The individual is not to be greater than the church family, but that is what we are fighting. This idea that the community only exists to serve me and my good. And we see it everywhere in our society, and so it becomes one of our greatest opportunities to be salt and light in a dark world. In Mark 3, 32 through 35, Jesus addresses this, as he does in several places, and We read, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And with those words, Jesus radically redefined family. He radically redefined group and what group meant. And he showed that the church and the church body is family. Not like family, but is family. And so we come today with, what should our family values be? Do we have family guidelines here? We all, we all said we do at home, otherwise there would be chaos. But is it, a, is, it a, is it vital that we have family guidelines here and family principles. How do we be a church family according to Scripture? And, and one of the things that it was just sort of fun as I was, was thinking through what our next series would be, on my desk was a, a membership application from one of you. And, um, and as I read through the membership application, we have a page of church guidelines of how we should act, what we expect of each other. And these aren't rules like, okay, if you, if you don't come exactly at 929, you're not allowed in or something like that. No one would be here. But um, <laughs> just, just honest. <laughs> and and it, so it's not this set of strict rules, but it's a set of what should be characteristic of the body of Christ. Things like what Terry said of respecting at home, things like that of how should we behave. And I was reading through this lifestyle statement, and the person had signed it, because when you become a member in membership class, you hear this, and then you sign this lifestyle statement to say, yeah, these are my commitments to to family. 
And as I started to ask people, nobody remembered signing it. And nobody remembered what it was because I get it. I, I don't remember either. You, you sign it and it's done and then you go on with life. And I realized we never talked about it as a church. We've never, we've never brought it up on Sunday mornings. We haven't regularly reminded ourselves what are some of the principles we want to live by as church family. And, and so that, that membership app, and, and at Village we practice membership because it's a way of saying I'm committed to this body as my family. This body is my church family, and membership is available for all believers, all believers that want to commit to this being their church family. But we ask, and we go through some things that should be pertinent, some guidelines for what family is. And so this morning, we're going to do part one, and, and the, the, the lifestyle statements in four different parts. So we're going to take four weeks, and we're going to teach through it. And so if you have become a member recently, this will be familiar if you have become a member maybe longer than, well, for me, a year ago, you might not remember this, and um, it's a good reminder. How do we be church family? From our membership covenant, we say beliefs are not worth much unless they are translated into appropriate actions. Based on what the Bible teaches, we feel very strongly about the following practices, and we list four things. The first today, I will protect the unity of God's church. If we're to be family, we have to be committed to protecting the unity of God's church. Now, now, that is a big statement right now because unity is being thrown around everywhere with all kinds of different meanings. So I want to define our terms a little bit because so much of what we're seeing now is unity is defined as uniformity or conformity. You have to agree with me to be united. And if you don't agree with me, and if you somehow think I'm wrong, then obviously you are being divisive and not being about unity. That is not a healthy definition of unity. And that is not a biblical definition of unity. And so when we come to unity in the church, we need to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible mean by unity? Not how are we hearing it defined, but what does the Bible mean as unity? It's not that we all have to have the same ideas. It's not that we have to have the same perspective, which ironically means whoever's in charge thinks that unity is agreeing with them. But a biblical view of unity has a different aspect of oneness and harmony and unitedness. Let's look at some verses. And this morning, we're going to go through a lot of verses. Anyone ever do sword drills when you were younger? Well, you're going to do it when you're older, too. Um, Psalm 133, 1 through 3. Psalm 133, 1 through 3. And if you want to just sit and listen to them, I'll read them. But if you can turn to them, that's even better. Behold, Psalm 133, 1 through 3. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Amen? There is something precious, and it's a blessing. It's unique when we dwell together in unity. Moms and dads with kids, do you feel this at home? Isn't it just precious when your family is united about something and in unity and, and is gelling and clicking? And it warms my heart like nothing else. It's so much better than if you say that again, I'm going to kill you or, or words like that. The unity is good and pleasant. The psalmist goes on and says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, we read that and we think, gross, 
this was good to them. This was cleansing and, and perfumed, and this was, was one of the ways that, that just this was a wonderful, soothing concept. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The psalmist is saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Interesting, just a side note, this is one of the psalms of ascent. So this is a psalm or a song that they would sing on their way up to Jerusalem to worship. So as they're coming to the gathering of the saints, they're saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And, and not only does that help them focus on community as they come, but it, it really reorients their actions as they come. It's a reminder, right? We're to be united as we come together. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6 is a New Testament place where unity is mentioned. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and this is, those are all parts of unity and how you get there. But verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul here, led by the Holy Spirit, talks about unity and, and maintaining the unity in the church and some of the ways you do it. But the foundation here is there's one, one spirit, there's one body, there's one salvation, and we've all been adopted into the same family. We've all been given salvation by God the Father. We are all sons and daughters of the King. So if we can't have unity, no one can have unity. Because we have the most important things in common. Unity in a church comes from the Spirit. Having Him work through us. It comes from common beliefs in God. It comes from a common purpose and call. And as we saw even in verse 2 there, it comes, it shows itself in how we treat each other. So what is unity? What is unity? And, and there's two aspects in these verses that I think will help. One is unity is being knit together in heart. Oneness is the word that the biblical di dictionaries use of this word unity. Oneness, it's how we view each other, how we treat each other. Do I view everyone sitting here as equal? As one, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is my heart knit to each of you? Does my heart long to be with you? And so, so unity is about a heart for each other. First and foremost, it's a heart for each other. I can have a heart and love someone dearly that disagrees with me. And that informs how we disagree. Susie and I don't agree on everything. Shocker, right? We must have a horrible marriage. No, we're two different people. We don't agree on everything, but boy, our hearts are knit together and there can be unity in the middle of that. And so the idea of unity and oneness here, that, that especially that comes out of the New Testament, the Greek definition, it's this, this mindset of you and I are one because we love each other, because our hearts are knit together. And so that creates an atmosphere of unity. Togetherness is sometimes how that is defined, or unitedness. We are all together in the, We are all in this together. 
Now, another word that is often used in biblical dictionaries for unity for that Greek word is harmony. And this is my favorite one this morning. Harmony. Think about harmony. Is, is harmony the same note as the lead singer or a different note? Different, right? If it's the same note, what is that called? What? Unison or the melody, right. And so if everyone's singing the same note, that's unison or everybody's singing the melody. Harmony is different people singing different things, right? Now, what if everybody's just singing whatever notes or almost notes that they want? Is that harmony? No, so harmony assumes that the notes all go together for the bigger song, for, for the purpose of the song. And so the idea of unity here is, is beautiful. Harmony says we're all different. We all are singing different notes or playing different instruments. But the idea is we are all approaching the same goal. We have the main thing the same. And if our main things are right, to, to seek God and do his work that we talked about last week, if those are in agreement, we can have harmony going about it in different ways. Now, if we disagree on the main thing, then we're singing different songs and it's chaos. But, but the word for unity and what we're to strive for in the church is to have the same main things and then our hearts knit together as we strive for that in different ways. Romans 12, 16 and 17, I'll read this to you. It's talking about unity, but he uses the word harmony. Live in harmony with one another. And then, again, how to put that into practice. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And so we're to be united in heart, but we're also to be in harmony and purpose. And that is a beautiful description of what unity means in the body of Christ. Is my heart knit with the people around me? Are we going the same direction? Then we're good. Then we're good. That'll overcome all kinds of differences about lesser things, non-primary things. But that's hard. Every one of the examples talks about humility and lowering yourself. And, and I think a great illustration of that, Leonard Bernstein is a famous conductor, and, and he was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Now, now, to understand an orchestra, an orchestra has different chairs, they call them, right, for an instrument. And so the first chair of an instrument, first chair violin, for instance, plays the melody or plays the lead. The second chair violin plays a harmony or a part that may even sound funny on its own. But when you put it together with the first chair and with the whole, it sounds beautiful. And so Leonard Bernstein was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And his answer was the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, that's the problem. Very insightful. If no one plays second, though, we have no harmony. And so unity here has to do with appreciating that we are different. We are approaching things different, differently, but we are playing the same song, the same main things. Now, in that statement, I will protect the unity of God's church. That's unity. But think about the word protect as well, because that's an active word, right? It's not just, I will want unity in our church. 
protect means I am striving for it and actively watching out for disunity to make sure unity happens. And, and it's interesting, in all those verses, listen to what was accompanied instructions for unity. Do not be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, don't repay evil with evil, do what is honorable in the sight of all, welcome one another, glorify God together, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, count other more significant than you, look out for others. Just in the verses we read, those are the things that, that the, the Bible says contribute to unity. I read that list, I'm like, wow. That is a heavy list of how we protect unity in the body of Christ, in God's family. But it's not just enough to want unity, we're to actively be protecting unity in, in the church family. So in our, in our covenant, in our membership um, lifestyle statement, we have four ways that we can covenant together to protect the unity of the church. Now I know there's a whole lot. We could take that whole list and come up with 20 ways right there. But we, we've narrowed it down to four ways. How do we protect the unity of God's church? And the first one there is by acting in love toward other members. By acting in love toward other members. Now this one we would think, okay, this is the obvious one of the day. This has to be first, right? But sometimes the most obvious we forget, especially when we have distractions and all the distractions that have been happening, it can be hard to remember to love each other. It can be hard to still want to love each other. It, it can be hard when people annoy us or when people have different views and we have strong opinions. You know, we know where to love each other, but do we still avoid people? We know where to love each other, but how do we do on the, the hard-to-love ones, the extra grace-required people? How do we do at loving the imperfect people? Now, now here's the thing. When I think, man, it is hard to love that person because they're imperfect, they have so many flaws, what do you have? What do I have? And so even this attitude of avoiding people or harding, having a hard time loving imperfect people or being frustrated by their flaws, all of that is coming from a standpoint, I don't have any flaws. It's coming from pride. And so this is just a wonderful reminder where to act in love toward other members. A definition that I've used for love, and I think I put it in your notes, love is selflessly and with affection caring and acting for the benefit and good of another without any expectation of return. Let me repeat that. Love is selflessly and with affection, caring and acting for the benefit of the, and the good of others without any expectation of return. Now that definition really combines the definition of agape and phileo, two of the words that are, are used in the biblical commands for the church to love each other. Both of those are used at times. And so that definition is a biblical definition trying to, to summarize those. But it means giving up personal preferences. It means giving up my schedule and my wants for the sake of the family. For the sake of the family. You know, if you're at home and you have chores to do, and only one person ever does the chores, what does that say about the other people? Well, you know, I, I don't want to wash dishes. 
I don't want to clean. I, I don't want to mow the lawn or whatever. Those are all things that are acting for the good and benefit of someone else, and we don't like doing them because they don't just benefit me. It's, it's not about me. But love says, I'm going to do that anyway. I'm going to act for the benefit and the good of another. John 13, 34, and 35 is the primary verse we use for this. And again, it's a familiar verse. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now notice a couple things in there. We're not going to spend our whole time on this, but just a couple of quick hits. We're to love one another as Jesus loved us, right? At the end of 34 there, as I have loved you, this is Jesus speaking, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. How did Jesus love you? He died on the cross. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. While we were still opposed to him, before there was relationship, he died on the cross for us so we could have that relationship. He pursued us. Do you think our flaws and our sin is an offense to his holiness? Yeah. But he still loves us. And and he still made a way to make those things right. Jesus loved sacrificially. He loved fully. He loved without expecting anything in return. He loved before he was loved. That's how we're to love each other, according to the Bible. To have that kind of sacrifice, that kind of commitment to it. But then 35, look at the results. This adds a level of seriousness to this. By this, if we love each other, if we protect the unity by loving each other, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Think about the inverse of that. If we don't have love for one another then we are compromising people's view of, of Christ, of, of being disciples. You know, I, I love studies, and in, and in the notes I have for your quiet time, some verses to meditate on, there are a lot of one another's in the New Testament, right? And that's a great study just to go through all the one another's. 34 of the one another's are some aspect of love one another, more than any of the other one another's. So the repetitiveness tells me we are a forgetful people. And, and God saw fit through his spirit to repeat it at least 34 times. And there's a lot of other inferences. Those are the direct ones. And I'll post some of those this week as we go. There's many more on how to put it into action, like accept one another, live in harmony, bear with one another, do good for one another, encourage one another. All of these things are how we act in love. A couple of other thoughts about love before we move to the next one. In your point, it says, by acting in love toward one other members. And we're very intentional to not say by feeling love toward one other members. Now, we should, but if that feeling never comes out in actions, that's a problem, and it's not real love. Love is not just a feeling. It is a verb. It is an action. And if it isn't accompanied by the actions that show it's true, it means nothing. That's why when I said, how did Jesus love us? The first thing you said was he died for us. That's an action. That's a proof that he loved us. That means beyond Sunday. Beyond Sunday. 
I've used this illustration before, but for me, it just brings it home. Susie and I just had our 30th anniversary. What if I only saw her on Sunday for an hour and a half? We're good. Saw you this morning. I love you. Happy anniversary. See you next Sunday. (laughs) Great marriage, right? You guys are laughing. That's not what actually happened. So please no emails and offering for marriage counseling and things like that. (laughs) Two hours? Oh, man, oh, we're going above and beyond. <laughs> the a- if the actions aren't there, that means nothing. I can say it all I want. But action says I'm going to be consistent in that throughout the week. I'm not just going to love you guys on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. If I say I love you, then I'm going to find ways to show that care throughout the week. And, and, but, but I want to add to this. I, I've stopped there before. Love isn't just an action. It's also the heart. So it's, it's both the, the feelings and the actions. Love isn't just an action, it's a heart. We are to love each other with genuine affection from the heart. And, and that's where phileo, brotherly love, comes in. That's all more of an affectionate love. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this verse is really hard if we just want to act, force ourselves to act in a loving way, but we still just tolerate people and we still can't stand them. And it, you can act in a loving way all you want, and if you can't stand them, it's going to ooze out of everything you do. It's a sore that festers and the pus just, well, that's too much. But um, the heart has to match. And Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, back to the foundation of you've been brought into the family. And he goes on and talks about that. Now, what if I can't? You may be sitting there thinking, Pastor Ron, there are some people, I can try that all I want, and my heart's not going there. Because I, I can't get past it. The first thing we need to do is recognize that sin and confess that to God. And ask for his help to overcome that. Then, for me, it's helpful when I start to see them the way God sees them. I need to see them as children of God, sons and daughters of God, with all the worth that that brings. With everything that that brings. They were worth, that person that I say I can't tolerate was worth God saving and dying for. When we avoid or just tolerate people, we are basically challenging Jesus' choice and love for them by bringing them in the family. Right? And, and we might say that, that's, that's hard. It is hard, which is why it's repeated 34 times in the New Testament. It's hard. But are we going to obey God and turn our hearts and knit our hearts towards each other? Can you see how this affects the unity of the church? What if I come and say, I can love half of you? What have I just done to the unity of the church? Now there's favoritism, now there's cliques, now there's group, and I have contributed to disunity and destroying the church. If we're to protect the unity of the church, it means we love the brothers, we act in love towards brothers and sisters, toward all the brothers and sisters. 
another verse that is just sobering for me. First John 4, 7 and 8. And you'll hear this, and, and I always start to sing the songs, you know. But, um, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then catch where he goes with this. See the seriousness. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me repeat that, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Our ability to genuinely show love from the heart directly reflects our relationship with God. And if we're struggling to love people, then we are struggling in our relationship with God. For me, that brings a whole new level of seriousness to this and commitment to not just tolerating people, but to, to, to go past that and to change my heart. See, selfless love is essential for the unity of God's church. When I act in an unloving way, it always is affecting the oneness. It's always affecting the harmony. It's always creating divisions. Selflessly loving each other plucks the weeds of, of bitterness and anger before they even start. Because I, I'm just taking care of things at the beginning and my love is overcoming those things. But when I am struggling with my relationships with any of you, then that opens the door for bitterness and anger and that just grows and, and it is so divisive. Loving each other from the heart, even when we don't feel like it, also combats self-centeredness, which is always the enemy of unity. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26 says this in talking about unity. And he's talking about gifts here and people misusing the gifts. He's just talked about some of the church celebrating the Lord's Supper together first because they could and, and not caring about others that may be excluded. And so all of that's this context, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. He doesn't use the word love there, but he uses the same care, this word for care, the same idea. Caring for one another in this way fights division. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so we see commands to care, to empathize, to rejoice. So this week, go out of your comfort zone. Act in love towards someone that is not part of your circle. Someone at Village, because we're talking about church family, but how can you show love to someone that's not part of your circle? Someone you ordinarily wouldn't. Now, it doesn't have to be someone that you don't like. So just someone not in your circle. Otherwise, everything, every loving thing people do this week are like, oh, they really don't like me. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Just let's, let's get out of your circle. And if you don't talk to someone much, Maybe try to send them a note or maybe uh, send them a message. But yeah, don't jump to, oh, we hate each other. But go out of your comfort zone. Wilbur Reese wrote this, and it, it was challenging to me, when he was talking about loving each other in the church and out of the church. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. 
I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. How much of God do you want? How much unity do you want? $3 won't do. This is something we're to be all in and committed to. Second point, as we're defending and protecting the unity of the church, we do that by refusing to gossip and instead practicing forgiveness. By refusing to gossip and instead practicing forgiveness. Anyone fill in those blanks and think, man, I wish you'd just skip this one? There's two parts there. Gossip and forgiveness. We don't always pair the two together, but I would argue that, that forgiveness is the antidote to gossip if it has happened, and thinking through what forgiveness really is is often a, a, an ability to stop gossip before it happens. So let's start with gossip. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 says this. For I fear, and, and Paul is talking, this is, this is Paul talking about when he comes back, what's he going to have to say to them? He's given them all these instructions. It's a church that had a lot of dysfunction. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And we have a whole host of things, quarreling, and, and really love starts to deal with that. The jealousy and anger are internal things that we're dealing with. But gossip there and slander are external ways that we use our words that really destroy the unity of a church. How many of you like to be gossiped about? No. How many would find it easy to come back next Sunday if you knew that after church today, everyone was talking about you and saying some really negative things about you? Are you there next week? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but in general, that's not an environment want to be. In general, that destroys the unity of the church because we are talking about each other in a way that isn't encouraging, that isn't building up, but that is derogatory and that is destroying people's character. So we need to ask the question, what is gossip? And that's what I hear a lot because gossip isn't just any talk about each other. There, there's some ways we talk about each other that's okay, right? I was talking about this with my sons. And I said, what if I went to church and said, Mark and Jeffrey played in a, a basketball game, and right now there's still no sports and maybe in three years, but um, Mark and Jeffrey played in a basketball game and they each scored 20 points. Is that gossip? It's information about somebody. But what? But it's not negative. And so we have to refine and really nuance this a little bit to understand what gossip is. Compliments are generally okay. Man, if you want to go around complimenting everyone in the church, now you're, you're obeying the, the commands to encourage one another. But, but co so compliments are okay, but what then is gossip? Gossip is talk about someone that is critical, negative, or cast them in a bad light. It's one aspect of gossip. Or it's sharing personal information that isn't our place to share. So two parts to it. Say, talk about someone that is critical, negative, or cast them in a bad light. Or sharing personal information that isn't our place to share. Information of that personal nature that they have the right to decide how and when 
to share. You know, questions we can ask is, would they want me to be sharing this all over? Would they want me to be saying this in secret about them? Do I know that they would be okay with this? That's, that's sort of my go-to question. Do I know that they'd be okay with this? A compliment or something good about someone in general, they're okay with that. They're like, yeah, more please. Um, and, and so that's a good test of is this gossip? The, the, the New Testament word for gossip here, it's really interesting. So, so you have root words that were like, how does that apply? And then you have how it's used in meaning. The root of this word is hiss or whisper. Sort of whispers about someone, hisses about someone, and you think of the snake and you think of the evil one. And, and that's the, the, the base meaning of the word. How it's used is what we just said, derogatory information about someone that is offered in a tone of confidentiality. Tailbearing. Hey, did you guys hear, hear what Kristen said? Did you guys hear what, what Kristen did this last week? No, I'm gossip. You didn't do anything. You're fine. I just, I know I can use your name. <laughs> and, and it's this, you know, confidential, even though we're all here and it's on live stream, confidential information that casts someone in a bad light. See, here's the thing. As family, we're to be loyal to each other. We're to have each other's backs as family. And to stab people in the back and to be spreading this stuff, that is not from God. Gossip insidiously destroys unity. Now, now, you might be sitting there, and I, I, I suspect with this congregation we're not, but you might be sitting there saying, yeah, preach it, the teenagers need to hear this. And they do. And so do we. Because adults are just as good at gossip, we just mask it a whole lot better. Right? You know, I have a prayer request about Kristen. <laughs> so I'm just going to run with it this morning. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hear that there's just some problems in her life that she can't share, so I can't share with you because I don't want to gossip. We're just good at it. We mask it better. I just need your support to know how to deal with this situation, and we just lay it all out. Or I, I'm not going to say their name so I don't gossip. But this husband who has been married 65 years in our church, he said this this week. Narrows it down. I think that would be my dad. <laughs> he can't disown me so I can pick on him in a sermon. <laughs> We're good at it. We're a small church full of smart people. We need to be careful of our words and even hints, even leaning towards that. Now, now, sometimes when people tell me a story, sometimes I'll just say, I need to know who it is. Because what do our brains do when we start to hear? We've already figured out who it is. And if we're right, that's not good. If we're wrong, that's worse. Fair? And so really the answer is don't tell the story. Not that you should give the name, don't start the story. We need to, to fight gossip. 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy for what to teach the church. And he says this about widows. So we're not talking teenagers here, widows. 
Besides that, they learn to be idlers. And, and ladies, this isn't just applying to you. This verse happens to be for widows, but it can be for widowers. It can be for any adult. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. If I could translate that, I would say stop it. Right? Stop it. We need to stop gossip in its tracks. Why is that so hard, though? I I think there's lots of reasons. We like to be in the know. We like to somehow feel special. That, that we, it also helps us elevate ourselves because we can put others down. Hey, if everyone else has problems, I'm good. Sometimes we gossip because we're angry or hurt about something. But we've got to understand it destroys the unity of the body of Christ and it is sin. See the seriousness of this in Romans 1, 19 through 31. They were filled with all matter of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Man, those are some serious sins. They are gossips is the next one. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents. Kids, that's in there. In this list of awful sins. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We need to see gossip not as idle talk just to make conversation, but as sinful division in the church. I challenge you to start thinking of that differently. So what's the cure? If someone has gossip or if you've gossiped, how do we overcome that? And there is no easy solution to that. I I love a familiar story about a lady that went to her pastor and she said, you know what, I have a problem because... I told people that my friend, that I thought she was having an affair and cheating on her husband, and I found out she's not. And so I need to undo this. How do I undo this? And the pastor said, here, take, or I don't think he had it. He said, go get a pillowcase full of feathers, and I want you to drive between your house and church, and, and as you drive, throw feathers out the window. She said, okay, that's a little weird. But okay. So she did that. She got the feathers, put them out the window as she drove to church the next time for their next meeting. And she gets there and says, okay, I did it. How does that help fix this? And he said, okay, now go pick up all the feathers. He said, that's what you're facing to try to fix this and undo this. That's the seriousness of gossip. But the good news is forgiveness is the antidote. Forgiveness can't undo the damage, but it can give the damage to God. And it can seek God for the healing. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Actually, we'll we'll look at just a couple verses there. Ephesians 4, 29. We'll look at 31 and 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. So he says, don't let corrupting talk, and that would include gossip and divisive talk. Don't do it. If it's not building up, don't do it. But then later in the same verses, 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And here's the answer. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, forgiveness, the concept of forgiveness in the Bible is transferring a debt to God. Taking a debt that I think someone owes me and transferring it to God and saying, I am no longer going to hold you accountable for that it, 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 or, or demand justice for that. I'm going to let God do that. And so forgiveness is letting go fully, freely, and forever, giving that to God. Gossip is usually letting go of a situation to our neighbor instead of God or to another person or trying to resolve it, trying to get payback for a situation. And so forgiveness stops the cycle of disunity. You can look at Colossians 3, 8 through 10, 12 through 13 in your quiet time this week, but it basically says the same thing. Verse 13 of that says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we need to give our grievances up to God, not to each other. You know, a side aspect of this is sometimes, and we've talked about this as a board, sometimes it can be really easy to take up an offense for another. And what I mean by that is we hear about a situation, we get angry on someone else's behalf, and then we act and try to intervene, and that is almost always disruptive to the unity of the church. Now, biblically, we are to, to take up an offense and defend the defenseless. But if I know two of you are having a problem, my job isn't to go to, to someone, well, maybe as a pastor it could be as a third party, but the individual's job isn't to enter that situation and to somehow start to deal with one side of it and say, you're wrong and you shouldn't have done this. And when you don't have all the information, taking up the offense for another almost always leads to disaster. Instead, we should tell the person that's telling us, I think you should go talk to them. That's what Matthew 18 says. I think you should deal with this in a biblical way. I will pray for you. I will encourage you. But I'm not going to go behind your back and deal with it because I don't have all the information. So we're to refuse to gossip and instead practice forgiveness. Some questions that I think are helpful with gossip Asking, am I directly part of this situation I'm talking about? If I'm not, I probably shouldn't be talking about it. Does the person I'm talking to need to know this? If not, I probably shouldn't be sharing it. Am I harming the reputation of a brother or sister? Someone that's in the family that I'm to be loyal to and have their back. Am I acting in a way to help brothers and sisters resolve a situation, either with each other or with their walk? And if you're not sure if it's gossip, best course of action is to keep the lips shut. So if we're to have undistracted unity, we've got to fight gossip and be people of forgiveness. In the last couple minutes, I'll give you the last two. These are a little more, more straightforward. Three, by intentionally encouraging others in the church family. By intentionally encouraging others in the church family. First Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And the word for encourage there actually comes from the same root of, of one of the roles of the Holy Spirit as our helper. It's to come alongside and to instill courage or cheer. Encourage, 
to instill courage. And so it's someone that is discouraged about life. It's someone that's struggling to come alongside and to give them courage, to cheer, to use words that build them up, to be present with, to comfort. All of those things are part of being a helper. Building each other up preserves the unity of the body. I I think it builds the unity of the body. It adds to the unity of the body. What does discouraging each other? What does saying words that tear people down do? Causes division. And here's the other thing. Even if we're not tearing people down, if we're just not encouraging each other, and we're all sort of our own little island and we come and exist and go home, that's not a unified body either. Unity in the body puts the love we talked about in point one into action by encouraging others in the church family. We're to be active in this. The word we use in that phrase is intentionally encouraging each other. Encouragement builds oneness of the soul that we talked about. Encouragement keeps us encouraged to be about the right same song, about the main things, the purpose of seeking Jesus and doing his work. Intentionally encouraging each other helps us not lose the discouraged and leave them behind and say, oh, they couldn't keep up. Hope their life's good. See them next Sunday. We're to intentionally encourage others in the church family. Maybe that's notes. Maybe that's texts. Maybe it's a little gift. Usually it's some way to let someone know that we thought of them and that they're not alone in this. Last point, number four, we, we protect the unity of the body by following the leaders. We protect the unity of the body by following the leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is hard to stand up here and read, quite frankly. But obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, it's hard because I know I'm not perfect. The other pastors know that. The elders know that. We feel the weight of that. We are fallible, broken human beings just like you that sometimes make bad decisions. And so to to read a verse that says, obey your leaders and submit to them, I'm like, That'd be hard sometimes. And so we come to this with humility and the sober reality that none of us will lead well perfectly in a fallen world. But thank you for following well. I think that has been a key to the fact that we're still here and that we're still fighting through 2020 and moving on into 2021. You have followed well even when we weren't perfect. You have followed well even with different opinions. You have trusted even when you disagree. And that's how you build unity in the church. Again, thinking about how this affects unity, think about the opposite. What if there was division about church leadership? What, is, what if there was active disagreement, not only disagreement, but disobedience to church leadership? Might that affect the unity of the church? If we were like Judges 21 and actually other places in Judges where it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes, 
Uh, it would be chaos. The same reason why we have sin, it would be chaos. And so it is so important to follow leaders, as long as they're being biblical and not sinning, to follow leaders, and, and that will aid the unity of the church. I remember being at a church one time, and I wasn't the senior pastor, and, and hearing someone in the greet time out there complaining about the pastor and saying, F him. You think that caused a little division? Yeah, it, it was so disruptive. It was like you could cut the air with a knife. It was that, I, I can't even describe it. We can't just have everyone doing what they wanted or following what they thought. What if everyone was like, ah, kids ministry, anyone can work in it. I don't care about their background. I don't care where they're at. Anyone can work there. No, we need guidelines. We need checks. And that's what leadership does and being on the same page. We can't just do our own thing. It's a sign of self-centered individualism. But thank you for doing this well. And I think that's your actions in following the leadership and obeying scripture, I think, is one of the reasons why we are coming out of 2020 very healthy, I think. And I'm excited about 2021. It is a weighty thing to keep watch over souls. It is a weighty thing to know I will stand before God and answer for how I've pastored and treated you. Thank you for partnering with me in that. And I speak for all of the pastors and all of the elders. We're to be a family through undistracted unity by protecting the unity of the body. That's number one. We'll do two, three, and two next week and then three and then four as we look at how to be a family. Thank you for being a united family that we can sing in harmony the same song. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would protect the unity of this church. Lord, that nothing would stop us from our purpose, nothing from, would stop us from the main things, that we can pursue those together rather than alone. Lord, help us to, by our love for each other, show this dark world what it means to be the church. Show them you. Lord, reveal in us today areas where we haven't had unity, where there's been um, just division. And Lord, help us to confess those, to receive your forgiveness and to forgive each other. Lord, help us to watch how we treat each other, what we say to each other. Lord, and build this church even stronger this next year as we move forward with your work. In your precious name, amen.